Okay, friends, I uh, invite you to turn in the, your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we will look at what God's Word will say to us today. Um, and um, I always feel like I have to do a, a little disclaimer. When I envisioned doing the series in Revelation... Um, when I envisioned doing the series in Revelation, I, I kind of thought, well, if we, uh, it was going to be originally just the seven churches. And then uh, many of you were like, I hope you keep going. I hope you keep going. And so I thought, okay, we'll keep going. But then I started to look at the passages and look at the book. And I thought, okay, well, these three chapters can be a sermon. Uh, and these three chapters can be a sermon. And sometimes that just doesn't work out. Like I kind of wanted to be done by February with revelation because uh, it's a hard book um but uh but sometimes uh, as we get get into this book i just kept having to slow down sometimes and today is one of those passages where we we're just going to slow down we're only going to look at uh five verses in revelation chapter 14 the first five verses of revelation uh, chapter 14 and so just a reminder of where we are in this book um in case you were you know gone for the the holidays and have missed the past uh, a couple of Sundays. We spent seven or several weeks in this uh, giant interlude in the middle of Revelation. So you, you've heard me talk about this frequently, uh, that Revelation is broken up into a, a bunch of sevens. You know, so we have the seven churches. Then you have the scroll with the seven seals. Then you have the seven trumpets. And we'll look at the seven bowls uh, of God's wrath coming up soon. And right now we're in the middle, uh, a kind of an interlude between the trumpets and between the bowls of God's wrath. And in these chapters, it goes from chapter 12 through chapter 14, and even into the beginning of chapter 15, uh, you have these seven symbolic histories or seven stories. And so you, uh, you might remember we've looked at these, we looked at the story of the dragon and the woman who was giving birth to the male child. We saw that right before Christmas time. Last week, we looked at the beast that is from the sea and the beast from the earth in Revelation chapter 13. We looked at those who um, received the mark of the beast and were worshiping the beast. And so those are the first four symbolic stories or histories. Today, we're going to be looking at the fifth symbolic story, and this is the story of the 144,000. And like all of these uh, other visions, um, you have them all kind of telling the story of redemption and then culminating at the, the end of the story. And that's what we'll see in, uh, with the angelic announcement, the angelic messengers, and then the story of the Son of Man. But right now, it's in the middle of all of that. We're in the middle of this conflict between Satan pursuing after God's people, because you, you uh, remember the dragon, uh, Satan, who's depicted as the dragon, was seeking to devour this male child born of this woman. And we know that that male child was, was Christ, and this is Satan's attempt to try and destroy the Messiah who was coming from the faithful, true Israel. And... Uh, was seeking to destroy him when he couldn't and he was taken up into heaven he now turns his attention on the saints he turns his uh, attention on the 
the descendants, the, the woman's other descendants, which would include us in the church today. And so it's in the midst of that, the midst of that conflict, this kind of cosmic conflict that is happening throughout history, throughout the church age, and it's happening right now, that you have uh, those who are swayed by the beast and wanting to go and worship the beast. And it's in the middle of that you have this story of the 144,000. And so that's going to be our, our passage for today. So if you would follow along as I read Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. This is Revelation 14. Then I looked... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the reading of God's word. We say thanks be to God. God, we ask that as we've read your word, that you, uh, that you would guide me in our time of reflecting on these words, that you would uh, give me words to speak and help to bring understanding to this, to this text. And God, that we would, more than that, having um, a better understanding of what your word says, that we, would, that we would do it. We would believe what you tell us to believe, that we would do what you call us to do that we would put away the evil deeds you call us to put away and to do the righteous works that you call us to do god we ask that you do that this morning and it is in the name of your son jesus the lamb that was slain and by your spirit that we pray and all god's people said amen and amen who are the 144,000? We, we've encountered the 144,000 uh, before um, several weeks ago, but it might be helpful to remind ourselves who this 144,000 is. And in order for us to apply this passage to us, we kind of need to know who that 144,000 is. And so before we do, let's kind of break it down here. Just some simple review. The lamb, we are introduced in verse 1. John looks and behold, and he sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion. This one should be pretty easy, right? The lamb is Jesus. We saw this, we know this, because John's very uh, first vision, after getting the uh, word from Jesus to the angels of the seven churches, you have this vision of John in the throne room of heaven. And he, in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And they're singing praises. The four living creatures, the 24 elders are singing praises to the one who is seated on the throne. And in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne is this scroll. You remember this, right? And 
John weeps because nobody is worthy to open up that scroll. And then in the next chapter, chapter 5, he's told, don't, don't worry, don't weep. There is one who is worthy. And John turns and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 6 of chapter 5. And so we saw that this is uh, clearly referring to Jesus. The lamb who was slain, but has uh, conquered. He is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. So in chapter 14, we get the, the picture of the lamb again. John sees the lamb again. So the lamb is Jesus. And then the next interesting thing we need to observe here is Mount Zion. Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is actually the name of the hill uh, on the southern part of Jerusalem. And Mount Zion was the uh, it's kind of the old name of the, the hill on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. Actually, even before Jerusalem had the name Jerusalem, back when it was called uh, Jebus, was another name early, early on throughout history. And it's always had this, this hill in it called Mount Zion. And all throughout the scriptures, Mount Zion is the term for the city of God, the dwelling place of God. It's kind of synonymous with Jerusalem. We, we kind of think of the, the, the word Jerusalem, but the very specific location of Mount Zion, that hill in the southern portion of, of Jerusalem. And through the New Testament, this Mount Zion, uh, all through the Old Testament, you have promises of God returning and he's going to come and he's going to dwell on his throne and he's going to be on Mount Zion. And in the New Testament, Mount Zion is kind of transferred. That idea, that Old Testament idea is transferred to the heavenly city and the heavenly dwelling place of God. So it's the, the heavenly dwelling place of God and his people. We've, we've looked at this verse several times. Um, but in the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 2 being an enthronement psalm. It's the psalm that they would sing every time uh, one of the people, one of the kings of Israel was kind of um, enthroned and established on his throne. And it might be helpful to read this again because this is a key psalm. This psalm is often many places used uh quoted and alluded to in reference to the work of jesus that he is god's son and that he is the anointed one and that he is the king over god's dwelling city psalm 2 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed. Okay, this is the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah. Saying, this is what the people are saying, who were rejecting the Lord. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Remember how we were introduced to God in this, in Revelation. He's the one seated on his throne, seated. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
Okay, This is a very crucial passage because here you have the Lord God speaking of his anointed who he calls him my king. And he says, and I will, according to this promise, I have set my king on Zion, meaning this is the realm in which he's the center of his rule. Zion is kind of the figurative expression for the center of God's rule over all of creation. Okay. So this is the Lord saying this about his anointed king. And he says, and I have set him on Zion, my holy hill. And then he continues. Uh, the psalmist continues. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, and this is now speaking of this, this anointed king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. We've seen this passage a couple of times because of the many places in Revelation that speaks of Jesus having the rod or the scepter of iron. This is the imagery that this is drawn from here. And it's uh, we, we come back to this psalm uh, is Again, in the background of this uh, depiction of the lamb on Mount Zion. This is the anointed one is ruling and reigning. So this is what John sees. He sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And then now we get to this hopefully gets helps us to understand who the 144,000 are. Um, the 144,000 are all of the redeemed, all of the church throughout history. Okay, And these are the ones who had his name, the name of the lamb and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is uh, in contrast to what we saw last week. Those who worshipped the beast and took the mark of the beast, which is the number of its name. And it was imprinted on their forearms and or on their hands and on their forehead. Right. So those are the wicked, those who continue to follow their own way and to reject the Lord God. The converse of that then is what we see here. The 144,000 are those who have the Lord, the lamb's name, Jesus's name on their forehead. So this is not a, a literal physical number that you're going to see. People are walking around and there's kind of some pentagram or anything like that. Uh, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is a, the, the symbol the, the marking of the forehead is the way of saying that this is the Lord's way of identifying. I know who are who are mine. And we know this because we saw this again in Revelation chapter seven. Um, we have in Revelation chapter seven, John sees four angels. He's standing at the four corners of the earth. Then he sees another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal, that's important, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had given power over, uh, given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so uh, I uh, you may have read this, the email that I sent out kind of as a servant supplement, maybe like a week, a couple of weeks ago, a month or so ago. Um, I wanted to kind of explain this in, in full, but I didn't get a chance to during that summer when we were or sermon, when we were covering this passage. Um, John hears the sealing and the numbering of what does it say? 
the servants of our God on their foreheads. And in verse 4, it says, And I heard the number of the sealed, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then went through the different tribes, 12,000 for each tribe. 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. So John hears this number, and then he turns around to see something different. What does he see? Verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great number. Notice that I, he heard something, and then he turns and sees what it is that he just heard about. He heard the numbering of the tribes of the servants of our God, and it's listed as 12 tribes of Israel, right? He turns and sees something entirely different. We saw this uh, several chapters earlier when he's, uh, one of the um, elders said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John, oh, I hear the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and he sees a lamb that was slain. Wait, like lion, king of the jungle, lamb slain. What's going on here? The imagery of the conquering uh, king of the jungle, king over all creation, and then a slain mild lamb that was sacrificed john was the vision is to put john put those two things together the sacrificed lamb is the conquering lion you're supposed to equate the two together that's the feature of this type of writing so what you have here is the same thing happening he hears something oh it sounds like the ceiling of israel and then he turns and sees something else. What does he see? After this, and look, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, every tribe, all peoples, all languages. This is the entire redeemed number of people throughout all of history. The church age. That's who the 144,000 are depicted there. It's a symbolic number. And then he turns and he goes, I, I can't even number it. It's innumerable. This innumerable mass. The same thing is uh, that's the same 144,000 that we are uh, uh, reminded of in and that John sees in chapter 14. So who is it? It's all the redeemed throughout all of history. The 144,000. It's the church. It's the church. Which means in more particularly, if you are in Christ, it's you. You are numbered among the 144,000. If you are in Christ. If you are, uh, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are numbered you are sealed with the seal. You have the name of the lamb written on your forehead. You have the name of the Lord God written on you. You are the 144,000. So if that's true, what can we learn about what this passage has to say about us? Four things. We learn about our protection in Christ. Our protection with Christ. That God in Christ seals and protects us spiritually. God seals and protects 
those who are his spiritually, who had his name written on them. And remember, this is contra to those who have the mark of the beast on them, to those who worship the beast, the one who copies and imitates the one true God and the one who imitates Christ. And they fall for this imitation. They want to. They want to worship them because it's, it's basically worshiping themselves. This 144,000 is sealed as his name on their foreheads. And it's the same that we saw of the sealing in chapter 7. He says, bring the seal, the seal of our God, until we have sealed the servants of our God. So God seals and protects his people. And this is especially important to remember that he seals us uh, even in the midst of the ultimate battle, the ultimate conflict that we are experiencing between God and Satan. This is a conflict that's real, that's happening now. How many of you have felt in the last several weeks that you are in a battle and a war, that you're in the midst of a big conflict between God and Satan, between Satan and you? Show of hands. You know, if you felt this. Maybe it's your, some things that are going on in your family. And you're like, this is not right. What is going on? Why, why do I feel like this, there's an attack happening? Maybe it's, it's work or business related or it's just maybe it's a spiritual depression or something that you feel. It manifests itself in multiple ways. And uh, what this passage reminds us is that even in the midst of the conflict, right, you just we're talking about the beast going after the um, the offspring of the woman. And then we have at the end of this seven symbolic stories, the angelic messengers coming, warning of the wrath. And then finally, the son of man coming to remove all of those who were uh, who are his enemies. And it's right in the midst of that. You have this word. I have sealed my 144,000. God seals and protects his people with his presence. Maybe the word for us then would be. What ways do we feel that we don't have God's protection? If we feel like the earthly things are not going well. How often do we translate that into the, the spiritual realm with us and God? And we feel like, well, he is not there. He's not protecting us. He's not sealing us. He's not overseeing us. This passage is saying, even though you may not feel it, he is. You are sealed. You are protected with Christ in his presence. So our protection with Christ, and then also this passage teaches us, if we are the 144,000, it teaches us about our praise for Christ, our need to praise him, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their, on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So here you have 
our need for praise because of God's graciousness. I always think this is kind of funny. I, I've, I've heard many times people kind of mocking the idea of what heaven's going to be like. So I don't want to be in heaven because, you know, um, we'll just be sitting around kind of these um, disembodied spirits floating around in heaven wearing kind of white robes and playing harps. And like, ah, I don't want to do it. And I was like, yeah, I don't like that imagery and stuff either. But, but then I was like, oh, well, you have these passages that people aren't pulling that out of anywhere. Like this is a depiction here of these, these people playing harps. So maybe we shouldn't mock that quite as much. But um, I think the idea is that these are not just any harps, though. Um, these, are, these are heavenly harps. These are angelic harps. These are harps that, whose amps go to 11, right? Because it says, uh, the roar of many waters like the, the sound of loud thunder and their voices was like the sound of all of these harps playing. And then notice in particular what they're doing. They're singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. This reminds us that this is taking us. We're right in the throne room here. Because remember, John's vision begins in chapter four. He's he sees the four living creatures and then he sees these 24 elders. And he sees the throne. He says, that's what's happening right here. And they're singing a new song. By the way, all of these things throughout scripture uh, the playing of harps, uh, the singing of a new song. Uh, you could see some of this in Revelation chapter five, verses eight through ten about harp playing. It also occurs again in the next chapter. All of these, uh, whatever you see, the singing of a new song and these bringing out of these instruments, these are always connected with the victory of the Lord over enemies in some way. And here, I think it's carrying on that same idea that you see throughout the Old Testament. This is victory. The playing of harps. The singing of a new song. This here is talking about the victory of Christ. Remember, he was the lamb who was slain, but yet he is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And it's also our victory. Our victory in Christ as we have conquered. Remember, that's the call all throughout Revelation is for you to endure, for you to remain faithful to Christ so that you will conquer. To the one who conquers, I will give. It's a refrain after every single one of the seven churches. So here's a depiction about our responsibility to praise. So I ask this, is praise for the mighty acts of God, uh, would that be dis a characteristic description of your relationship with Christ? Is praise a characteristic of your relationship with Christ? And do you focus on the greatness of what he has done? For the 144,000, we are privileged to sing and to sing a song that actually no one else gets to sing. So we have our protection with Christ, our praise for Christ. And then we have our discipleship in Christ in verse four. It is these, John says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Okay, well, stop there for a moment. Like what what does this mean? What is what is going on here? Um, 
it, because some view this 144,000 as a literal number of a literal number of people in the great tribulation. And they're all Jewish males and they all just happen to be unmarried and uh, and virgins. Um, but again, I think we, we're seeing so much figurative language all throughout here. And we clearly saw that this 144,000 is talking about all of the saints of God, all those who have re been redeemed from all of the earth, from all of mankind. Something maybe else is going on here. Is, is this really advocating celibacy, pure celibacy? No, this is figurative. This takes us again back to the Old Testament use where... It, Passage after passage after passage in the prophets and uh, in many places that apostasy from the Lord, abandoning faithfulness to the Lord in following him and his covenant is often depicted as marital unfaithfulness. And I think that's the the idea here, too. The Old Testament image of apostasy is was a, was a depiction of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Couple couple examples. Let me, because um, sometimes I say these things and I think some people go, ah, I get a like side eye of suspicion. Where you, where do you see that? A uh, couple places, and I, and by that I mean it's mostly from Janet. So this is good. It's like she's like the filter I have to run things through. Um, so what about Hosea, for instance? Hosea chapter 1. Many of you know the story, right? Hosea gets this word. He gets this command from the Lord. It's a very interesting command, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Right? So, and you know this, this story. He wants them to, he wants Hosea to do this kind of as an enactment of the reality of what is, what is happening. He's using this marital unfaithfulness and unchastity to depict the apostasy of Israel. What about uh, Jeremiah? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3. Actually, it's many places in Jeremiah, but this is, um, here's one of the early depictions of it. Jeremiah chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 32. He says, can a, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Notice what it says in chapter 3 of Jeremiah. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Will not the land be greatly polluted? You, he's talking to Israel here, you have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me? Now, he's, is this literal or is this figurative? Is this a way of describing the apostasy of Israel, of them going and worshiping other gods? Or worshiping God in the temple and also going over to, onto the other hill and worshiping the Baals or the Asherah. Many places in, in Jeremiah and the other prophets said 
the condemnation against Israel is that you kept going up onto every high hill and under every green tree and prostituting yourself to these other gods. That's the, that's the depiction here of this unfaithfulness, this defiling. He goes on to say this about Israel, chapter six, or chapter three, verse six. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, uh, have you seen what she did, the faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all of this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that all her adulteries of that faithful, faithless one, Israel. And I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So I think, uh, I think it's that backdrop here that we need to, to see what's happening in Revelation chapter 44. These are the sealed, right? These are the saints. These are the ones who have been redeemed from all of humanity. And what that means is, is that they haven't apostatized. They haven't left. I think that's what we need to understand when it says not defiled themselves. Not defiling themselves means they've remained faithful. Which is what the call is really later in the uh, later in this chapter. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's who I think that those those virgins are there. It is these who have not defiled themselves for women for they are virgins. And then he goes on to say, and it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a picture of what. The faithless, faithful followers of Jesus look like. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this is really the pattern that you see. Uh, you see this, this gospel all throughout the Bible. Remember kind of the, the, the huge event of the Exodus. God bringing his people of Israel out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. He had made a promise to Abraham. He said, you're going to have a great number of people. You're going to be a mighty nation. And they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God remembered his promise. He heard the cries of his people and he brought them out. And then where did he bring them out after he brought them out? He brought them to Mount Sinai and he says, you're my people. You're my treasured possession. Now, here is our covenant relationship depicted in the, the Ten Commandments, right? So notice the pattern. God doesn't go, okay, here's the Ten Commandments, obey them, now I'll bring you out and redeem you from Egypt. What does he say? He goes, I'm going to bring you out, you trust in me, and then here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to be. This is how I want you to live. So God saves, we follow. God saves, we follow. And I think that's a picture of what our discipleship should be. God saves, we follow. 
So here's my question to challenge us. How are, how are you doing in your discipleship? Do you have a follow the lamb wherever he goes type of life? The, the reminder for this 144,000 is the lamb is taking you somewhere. And it may be even in the midst of the conflict, the great conflict with the dragon. He's taking you somewhere. The lamb is leading. Where, where is he going? And are you following? How are you in a follow the lamb wherever he goes type of life? Maybe we just take a moment and you kind of think, ask yourself that question this week or even make it a prayer. Jesus, where are you leading me? Where are you going? Lamb of God. And then say, Jesus, help me to follow you there. So we have our protection with Christ, our praise for Christ, our discipleship in Christ in verse 4, and then in verse 5, um, our transformation into Christ likeness. Okay? Our transformation into Christ likeness. Verse 5. And kind of even back up a little bit into verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind. As first fruits for uh, for God and the Lamb. Okay, the question about first fruits here too. Like, what what is first fruits? What does that mean? Does that mean that because first fruits was always the the beginning portion of a much fuller thing? And elsewhere in the Bible, it kind of talks about the first fruits of those who have been redeemed. You know, or first those have been resurrected. And so some have said, well, maybe this kind of is saying that this four hundred forty four thousand is a small number at the beginning. Um, uh, I think it's more in the more of the sacrificial understanding of first fruits. The first fruits of the harvest is what was to be sacrificed. And I think here uh, is the backdrop behind that. These are the first fruits. These are the ones who have, who have given over their lives, even giving over their lives for faithfulness to Christ as a sacrifice. And as Paul says in revelation or uh, Romans chapter 12, um, that our life view of God's mercy, that we offer our lives as a living sacrifice. I think that's the picture there. But then notice what goes on here. Uh, they're redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So now this one, you have to see Lamb and then this phrase, no lie was found in their mouth, for they were blameless, takes us back to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 actually begins in Isaiah 52. And this is the passage about the suffering servant of the Lord. I love this passage. Behold, my servant, this is the Lord talking about this promised servant who is going to come one day and who who is uh, who Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they had not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Notice this picture here. It's this one who comes from the Lord. He's from among Israel. He doesn't have any majesty that's brought to him. And the New Testament writers clearly saw, boy, this is This is describing the servant of the Lord who was coming, the promised Messiah, the anointed one. This is Jesus. John's gospel does it. Mark does it. Chapter 9. And yet this person bears our griefs and our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Um, By the way, doesn't this sound like what happens with Jesus on the cross? Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Isn't that? Remind you of Jesus standing on his trial before Pilate. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. By the way, don't you remember Matthew? That they have Jesus didn't have his own tomb, so he was had the tomb of Joseph, was Joseph Arimathea, who was a very wealthy person. Although he had done no violence, and here's the key part, and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's a summary statement saying this is he was perfect. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if there was no deceit in his mouth, it conveys his perfectness of his life as elsewhere is conveyed throughout this this whole thing. He goes on, the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied By the knowledge of all the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
So here you have the sinless substitutionary sacrifice of this one who was on a cross, whose wounds we have been healed, and he is the sinless one. This lamb before his shearers as silent, and he had no deceit in his mouth. I think that's a little behind in the backdrop of here when it says that this is also describing the 144,000. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits, first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. For they were blameless. So I would say it this way. It's our transformation into Christ-likeness. When we have been sealed with Christ, and we praise Christ for His works of his deliverance and salvation that he accomplishes for us, that we receive by faith. And as a consequence, we go where he calls us to go. Our discipleship to him, we are transformed into his image. The image of his son. Paul says this in Philippians chapter uh, 1. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. What we're reading in Revelation chapter 14 is a picture of it being brought to completion. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, verses uh, 28, verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Revelation chapter 14 is depicting this glorification of the saints. It's our glorification. So friends, do you remind yourselves of your status as a child of God being protected and sealed in him? Is praise a characteristic of your relationship with Christ in response to the sealing work of God? And how are you doing in the follow the lamb wherever he goes kind of life? And are you trusting that one day God will bring to completion what he promised to do. Friends, you are the 144,000. May these words be an encouragement to you this morning. And as you leave from this place to go and live your lives as a glorifying uh, offering to him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you this morning. For the overwhelming 
truth of what we have just encountered in your word. God, for those of us who are in Christ, even, uh, even when we struggle, even when we have doubts, even when we fear that you're, you're not near, we thank you for this encouragement and this reminder that you have sealed us, that you have protected us, and that you will bring to completion the work that you have began, that you have begun in us. God, may those truths spur us to praise of your name day in and day out. God, help us to remain faithful to you. And God, where we ask that you begin to make us aware as your people this week, as we ask ourselves, where can we go? Where, where are you going, Jesus, that we need to follow? And God, help us to do that. God, we pray that you, um, that you take this word that you've given us and plant it deep within us to shape and fashion us so that we could be like Christ for your glory. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand for closing uh, benediction? And if you have any questions or anything about this passage or uh, any other questions in Revelation, I'd, I'd love to, to chat with you after the service. Uh, or if you have any need of prayer, uh, any special prayer needs that you would like for uh, people to pray for you about, um, if you would like to come forward, we would like to pray for you and um, if there's any prayers who want to hang around and help pray for those I uh, encourage you to do that um, brothers and sisters now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go thank you